You are listening to Sparking Wholeness with Erin Carey, where we talk about all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul. Are you ready? Let's do this. Hey everyone, it's Erin Carey, and I am so excited to be sitting down with Dr. Adrienne Udeem. She is an internist who specializes in medical weight loss and nutrition. Her mission is to transform the weight loss narrative to one that is both empowering and compassionate, inspiring people to live more physically and emotionally fulfilling lives. Dr. Udeem draws on best medical practices in the field of obesity medicine and on her patient's personal value system, trusting that we all inherently know what we need. Dr. Udine believes that navigating our hunger is a process that requires introspection, self-acceptance, and a sense of agency. One of the principles of her practice is to provide both inspiration and information. Dr. Udeem encourages her patients not only to consider tools and logistics of a weight loss plan, but also to consider the motivating values that inspire them. She gives her patients information relevant to their weight loss journey, including resources to promote self-awareness, journaling exercises, and mindfulness practices. She has a long list of publications that she has contributed to, and she's been featured on news sources such as Fox News, CBS News, Good Day LA, Dr. Oz, Doctors, Dr. Phil, among so many others. So I am excited to welcome her to the show. Thank you for being on the show today. Thank you, Erin. That was a mouthful of an introduction. I appreciate you and I'm it, really happy to be here. It's great. No, it's good information. And I, and I want to make sure that people, you know, hear your full list of, of what you've done and how you incorporate not just this medical weight loss, but also just kind of, you know, the whole relationship with food relationship to yourself, all of that. And I'm so excited to dive into that. And you have a new book and I'd love for you to just talk briefly about this book and then we will just go from there. Yeah. I, I think I want to just hit on that on, on the kind of aspect of the, the medical and the emotional and spiritual, right? Because I think you're right. Like when we address weight loss or things in general, we kind of have this like dichotomous approach, right? Like either we're Western medicine and hardcore science or we're like crystals and, you know, sometimes it's a little bit of voodoo (laughs) medicine, right? Um, And there really is this place where we can utilize all the resources in our toolkit, right? Like don't dismiss the medical stuff. The fact that we do have medications for weight loss, the fact that there are dietary strategies that help people, but also that there is this spiritual emotional side that is so, so closely linked to our hunger. And, you know, in terms of the book, you know, I, I, I say this all the time that as a physician, I really have been in such a privileged position because I I get to sit down and hear people's stories. And I have heard 15 years of patient stories. And to, to be able to acknowledge that there is such a universal thread in, in our stories, right? I mean, I don't care who you are, what you do, old, young, black, white, female, male, CEO, movie star, or, you know, housewife which, you know, I don't mean to say that in a derogatory way, but whomever you are, we all have the same longing, the same hunger for compassion. We all have the same desires, the same struggles. And so my writing this book was really to share with everybody the common humanity, 
to take away the shame that we have around these emotions and around our struggles with food, to really bring in my own experiences as a way to validate others to say, hey, I'm a physician who's been in this field for years, but I am just as human as everyone else. And to explain the science behind it. Because when we understand that there is a physiology behind our emotional eating, then we are less likely to shame ourselves for it. This is human. This is what our bodies do. So let's start from that place of acknowledgement and understanding. And that is where um, we can begin. That's where the magic happens, right? Yeah, yeah, that's so good. And I, I'd love for you to, since you mentioned it, maybe touch on that whole physiological explanation for emotional eating, because I think that that's really powerful and something that people need to hear. Right. So, you know, our, our hunger is, is driven by hunger hormones. So in a normal situation, we have a hormones that get released by our stomach that notify our brain that we're hungry. When we put something in our mouth and we eat that level, that signal dies down, the hormone level goes down. We have hormones that are released by our gut that tell us we're full so that when the brain receives that message, you know, again, our hunger diminishes. Well, what we know now is that when a person is under duress, when we're stressed, when we're dealing with difficult emotions, our emotions literally hijack those hunger hormones so that they go in the direction that promotes hunger when they shouldn't, even when we've consumed food. So when you think about it that way, it gives this idea of emotional hunger a whole different spin. We're not talking about a girl eating ice cream out of you know the carton sobbing in front of her TV. We're talking about neurobiology that everybody experiences and it is part of our physiology. Yeah, that's really good. Cause I think that we do have a lot of misconceptions about emotional eating and weight loss and this idea of discipline, just having more discipline, having more willpower. So what are some myths and misconceptions that you've encountered working with people on, on with their weight loss? So again, I am, you know, I really do uh, recommend like practical strategies, right? So there are, there are, um, you know, dietary strategies like 20 to 30 grams of protein per meal helps suppress your hunger or um, sleep. You know, when people have sleep deprivation, hunger hormones go up. And so part of my regimen is sleep or even just logistics, right? Like you can know everything and yes, we all know it all. But if you can't find the time in your day to implement those strategies, then it makes no sense. So logistical things, um, logistical points are part of my recommendation. But I'll tell you a big one on the emotional front, which is, you know, uh, Brene Brown, who I love. Uh, you've probably read her work. She's wonderful. She has a quote in one of her books, and I think she says it on her Netflix show, you can't bully yourself into change, right? And that's what we do, right? We look at ourselves in the mirror and we're like, you know, bleeping bleep, you know, my butt is big and my stomach and what did I do during the pandemic? And I can't believe I gained all this weight. We try and beat ourselves into change through judgment, self-deprecation, and that invariably results in sabotage. Um, so I'm going to give a very common example. I've experienced this, Erin, I bet you, you've experienced this and your reader, your viewers or listeners have too. 
you decide, all right, pandemic is over. We're getting back on the, you know, in the swing of things. I've decided to shed a few pounds. So you uh, start eating cleaner, get on the scale, expecting, you know, this massive weight loss. You don't get that massive weight loss, or maybe you don't lose any weight at all. Instead of just acknowledging where we're at, right? Just like see yourself where we're at. What do we do? We start, you know, fussing over ourselves and shaming ourselves. And then we throw in the towel, right? So like right at the point where you would have made change, you may have seen that weight loss, you have sabotaged yourself. Whereas if you can accept yourself, you know, where you're at and say, you know, I get it. It's been a hard year, right? Like we've all suffered in some way this year. We've all experienced loss and have kindness for yourself, which by the way, scientifically has been shown that self-compassion does result in habit change. Um, we do it from a, a perspective of, of self-deprecation. So I would say the, the common misconception or the thing that I see that people really do a disservice to themselves is approaching this issue from a place of shame where they should really be approaching it from a place of self-compassion. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. Now I want to hold that thought real fast. I definitely want to touch back on that, but I want to take a second and give a special thank you to our sponsor for today's episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Indeed. Now we know when we're talking about healthy behaviors and making healthy habits and changes, we know to avoid trans fats and ultra processed junk food and pesticides. But when your company is hiring, what can you do to avoid wasting time and money? Start a practice of healthy hiring and only paying for quality candidates based on your must-have requirements with Indeed. When hiring gets hard, you need Indeed, the job site that makes hiring incredibly simple. Just attract, interview, and hire. In fact, with Indeed, you can do all of your hiring in one place, even interviewing. Don't just hope your perfect candidate will find you. Indeed's hiring tools help you cut through the noise to hire faster and smarter. In fact, Indeed Instant Match provides a list of quality candidates whose resumes are on Indeed the moment you post a sponsored job. Indeed knows how important it is to make the most of your recruiting hours and dollars. With Indeed, you can save time and money by setting your must-have qualifications and only paying for the quality candidates that meet them. According to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash spark get a 75 dollar credit at indeed.com slash spark indeed.com slash spark offer valid through september 30th terms and conditions apply now i want to get back to what we were just talking about this whole idea of shame versus self-compassion and and it's interesting to think about i don't know what beliefs we have about weight and our bodies and dieting and how much of that comes from our parents or our culture or or is it maybe that's a question for you with how much of these food issues and these beliefs come from parents and what we are modeled as children yeah um actually i think it's the second chapter in the book um i want to say hungry for self-love where i talk about um one of the girls who comes in with her mom and 
my kind of visceral reaction to this mother who is, you know, um, pushing her daughter to lose weight when she's, you know, just within the normal range of BMI. Um, and so, yeah, there is a lot of, there is that. Um, it doesn't even have to be so uh, forthcoming, you know, sometimes um, like in my personal experience, like something was said once, right? Like they don't have to be horrible people, right? But like one person in your life can say something once and it's at a critical time and it lands in a way that gets lodged in your consciousness. And then you replay that story over and over again. Um, certainly if our families and our, our parents don't do it to us, society does it to us, right? And we have a major problem in this country. We shame women from a societal perspective. I mean, just this week, we had on one hand, the Norwegian uh, volleyball players, right? Who got like shamed because they didn't want to wear bikinis, right? I mean, how outrageous is that? They should be able to wear whatever the, they please, right? They damn well please. And then we also had, on the other hand, the anniversary of something called Med Bikini, um, which was this thing that happened on Twitter last year where some men, uh, and, you know, I've, I love my husband, got a lot of great men in my uh, life, so I'm not, you know, badgering or disparaging men, but some vascular male surgeons had published that women shouldn't be putting their personal lives uh, on Instagram, women physicians shouldn't be seen in a bikini on Instagram. And, mm -hmm. you know, the response there is, you know, if I'm not coming to the medical office in a bikini, you know, when I come to see you as a physician in a bikini, then you can slap my hand. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but like, why, why is society telling us women to wear bikinis, to not wear bikinis, why is it even an issue? Like we've got bigger fish to fry right now. We are in the middle of a, still a pandemic. We've lost people in our lives due to COVID. We've suffered financial loss. Our work lives and children's lives have been uprooted. And we're talking about bikinis, like, come on. Yeah. So um, yeah, we are getting messaging everywhere. And I am super passionate about this, obviously, but there's a point to it. I'm not just ranting. And the point is that we can unlearn that messaging, right? We can realize that that voice in our head is not our intuition. It's not our own voice that is saying you should or should not be in a bikini and shaming ourselves for how we choose to be seen in the world. It is messaging that has come from the outside. And I, I really... Um, I challenge our, us collectively. I challenge us collectively to, to challenge that voice and recognize where it's come from and push back on it a little bit, question it, right? Because until we do that, we are gonna be in a place where we are reacting. Until we get to a point where we question those limiting beliefs, we are gonna be reactive. So let's change the narrative and it is up to us as men and women to change that narrative. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there's also a, a narrative and a stigma that comes with this whole overweight, obese. We saw it a lot in the last year and the research, even regards to the pandemic and oh, how obesity plays a role. And 
what what do you say about that stigma uh, and and how do we address the idea of weight or added weight or obesity that obesity epidemic how do we address that in a healthy way that's not shaming it's such a great question because you know the word obesity really is just a medical term that describes a certain bmi um, you know why that cre- that has such a negative connotation is really just our bias. It's like when we say hypertension, we don't all say, oh, you know, like, oh my God, how shameful she has hypertension. Um, it's hypertension, right? And the and obesity, we call that quote a disease, which also people think is shameful, but it really just speaks to the physiology behind it. Once you have excess adipocytes, which are fat cells, they start secreting hormones that affect our hunger. And so that's a thing, right? Mm-hmm. And and the pushback to that has been this whole um, thing of healthy at every size, right? And I understand that. I understand that we don't want to stigmatize people, but that's, again, we're missing the boat, right? When we tell people healthy at every size and we don't accept the fact that, yes, you are at greater risk for certain health conditions, we are telling people you can't handle the truth. So we're going to say healthy at every size. Why don't we say compassionate at every size? Why don't we say no judgment at every size? And then you can empower people to do the right thing for themselves without brushing it under the rug. No, I don't want my patient who has type two diabetes and excess weight. I don't want to tell her healthy at every size. I want to say, I see you. I don't judge you. I have compassion for you. Now let's get this under control because you are worth more than living a life with diabetes. And so my answer to that question is that we need to be honest with ourselves. Um, being kind is not being dishonest and not telling people the truth. Being kind is telling people the truth and holding them with compassion and then empowering them with the tools, right? To be able to take ownership of their health. And that's the point here. Like you are in the driver's seat, right? You may be in a, in a, um, job in which, you don't have time. You may live with a partner who loves to eat junk food. Um, you may have genetics of an obese person. You know, I certainly do and did, but that doesn't define you, right? Take ownership of your health because you are worth it. And that's how you beat the stigma, right? That's how you do it. Yeah. And I really appreciate your approach because you do look at more than just the food and even every single chapter in your book, it's hunger for, is it connection or hungry for, um, there's one on movement. There's one on just about every, and I really appreciated that because it's about more, it's always about more (laughs) than just the food, but how we relate to the food really does make kind of show how we relate to everything else in our world. So I'd love for you to touch on that. Yeah. You know, in, in virtually every patient that I see, um, who comes in and is like, yeah, I need to lose 20 pounds, right? Like the pandemic happened. I lost my routine. Yeah, I get it on the surface. That's what's going on. But in every patient that I've seen over the last, you know, almost 20 years, we've identified a deeper hunger. So, um, maybe it's perfection, right? That's so common. And the hunger is for self-compassion. And I talk about in the book how self-compassion is actually an evidence-based antidote to perfectionism, which actually, you know, is a spectrum, but can even be a clinical disorder, right? 
Um, I've seen people who are in a job in which they're not seen and they're not valued and they don't have the opportunity to show their genius and there's a hunger for autonomy, right? Um, I talk about um, hunger for belonging. Um, you know, my patient who came to Amer to uh, Los Angeles and she left her her family, her friend group, her community, and she was really hungry for belonging. And by the way, I have experienced every single one of these. I talk about my own struggle with perfectionism. I talk about my own hunger for belonging as a frizzy haired Middle Eastern girl living in Dallas in the 80s. I talk about my hunger for autonomy when I had to leave a very prestigious position as a medical director because I just didn't feel like I was using my genius. Um, and it left, or when I left, it allowed me to start my product line and to do creative pursuits like writing this book. And so there is this, this other hunger and they are so, um, like we are all unique, right? But our struggles are so universal. And that was really the intention in bringing out these stories. And I love that, you know, before we started recording, you talked about how it was relatable. And that's the one thing that I'm hearing. Um, I have, um, you know, my editor for the book, my proofreader was a skinny white male, you know, and he <laughs> found it relatable, you know, mm. to, he could relate to a middle-aged Middle Eastern girl, right? And so mm. that's really my intention, which is to show the common humanity, which is actually one of the principles of a mindful self-compassion practice, knowing that we are not in it alone, that our, you know, feelings of imperfection and flaws, you know, we're all flawed. And if we can, sometimes we don't give ourselves that compassion, right? Like we'll give it to our best friend. We'll give it to our, you know, partner. If they're having a hard day, we don't do it to ourselves. But when we can see the, the struggle from a perspective of, of common humanity and say, hey, I am my best friend. I am what my teacher or my mentor or my husband or my child is experiencing that allows us to have more self-compassion. And so the book was really intentional in bringing out my personal stories as a way to validate um, the common experience, right? Yeah, and it did, and it definitely does. And stories are so powerful. And your, again, your personal stories interwoven with the stories of your patients, like that makes an impact because like, oh, oh, she's dealt with this too. You know, people need to hear that. And even I will say personal story, last night I had just eaten, I was, you know, pretty full, like on, on my hunger scale, like whatever, but I felt like I need something else. I need something else. And I actually stopped myself. I was like, okay, what am I actually hungry for here? Is there an emotional thing going on? Do, my kids are gone for the week, which is wonderful, but it's like, oh, I think I'm kind of missing my kids. <laughs> I think I miss just that, that connection with my family. And it was so good. It was reading your book and realizing, okay, there's always something else going. I mean, sometimes there is physical hunger, but yeah. oftentimes there's something else going on. I love that. I mean, that is like, um, music for my soul. What you said. <laughs> I love that. And, you know, I want to touch on something because I do talk about this middle life issue or midlife issue with 
one of my patients who I call Adele, whose name, you know, these names have been and stories have been changed, but you know, it's a, a story of a person going through menopause. And actually there's a couple stories that touch on this. Mm -hmm. And so we all know that menopause is a time of big physiologic transition for women and pre-menopause can begin as early as 10 years before you actually go into menopause. So I suspect that the majority of your women listening right now are somewhere mm -hmm. pre, yep. in, or post, right? Menopause. It's a big segment of us that are experiencing these physiologic changes which you know, estrogen levels are dropping, testosterone is relatively higher. We're developing mid-abdominal bulge, muscle mass is declining, and therefore our metabolisms are declining. All that, right? All that physio physiology. But what else is going on? We're empty nesting. Um, we're reckoning with the fact that we no longer have menses and yay, that's wonderful, but it's also a loss of identity. We can't mm. have kids anymore. And I, for one, have three beautiful kids. I can't wait to not have to have kids anymore, but that's still a change, right? That's still a loss of our identity or, you know, moms who have stayed at home and who are now, you know, reckoning with the fact that wow, I, I gave up my career maybe, and now my kids are gone. Or moms who went to work and are now saying, well, shit, now my kids are gone and did I miss out? So <laughs> there's so much happening for us women, you know, in this time that is a spiritual hunger. Hmm. Yes, there's the physiology, but there's also that spiritual emotional hunger. And if we can be in tune with that, um, that really is so powerful. Yeah, that I'm so glad you brought that up because that definitely does relate to I'm sure a lot of people who are listening relate to that. I personally <laughs> am sensing those changes in myself. And in the last year or so, I found myself hungrier, but my metabolism is slowing down and there's a lot of so how do you get people to get back in touch with even their hunger signals, you know, because the way leptin and ghrelin can change according to our hormones. And even if we have more fat cells, sometimes we can, our bodies can turn off that fullness factor as well, correct? Yeah, and you know, um, so a lot of times what happens is what I hear from my patients is that, um, you know, like I don't understand what's going on. I'm eating the same thing I always ate or right. I'm, you know, I'm doing the same exercise. Why am I all of a sudden putting weight on? And the truth is that like, you're not who you were when you were 20, you're not who you were physiologically when you were 30. So you can't do all of the same things that you did and expect to be the same. Um, movement is a big issue. And while the weight loss piece per se is really, as we know much more about what you eat than, than moving uh, or exercise, one of the things that happens when we are even in our 30s, which, you know, I was gonna say, what, during aging, and I don't consider 30s aging, but lo and behold, it starts happening in our 30s, is that muscle mass starts to decline. And so use it or lose it is a thing. And so the one, one of the things I recommend is like, you really need to be exercising or moving your body and, you know, like walking your dog who's, you know, sifting the flowers. I mean, that's wonderful, but that's not going to cut it. That doesn't mean you need to go into a gym and, you know, like buy expensive equipment, but like move your body, turn on the music full blast and sweat, you know, dance around the house and sweat, um, go on a hike, push yourself. I, I have a lot of people who label themselves as like, oh, I'm not a runner. Oh, I'm not athletic. 
And especially for my patients who have anxiety, I recommend running. You know, I don't say go out and start running 30 minutes, but I say go on a walk and just give yourself 30 second spurts, just 30 seconds. You can do anything for 30 seconds. And I recommend that because we know that physiologic stress, that panting and, uh, you know, exertion helps us tolerate psychological stress. And so it is a way to get out of our heads and into our bodies. Um, so exercise uh, or, or movement is a big part of that. And then, you know, the other piece is, you know, is more protein. Um, mm -hmm. Our muscle mass is determined by the amount of protein we eat and, and our movement and exercise. But I I'm not a keto person. I don't, you know, I don't go for all these fad diets, but we do know that higher protein diets do help preserve muscle mass so that you don't lose muscle and metabolism while you're, you're quote, uh, losing weight. I don't like the word dieting. Um, and also it helps keep us full. So I don't approach weight loss from a perspective of restriction, because when you think restriction, deprivation, you know, like I, I did this post on Instagram a couple of weeks ago where I, I don't know why I was thinking about Yom Kippur, you know, the day of fasting, it doesn't happen until September, I think. Like, why do I wake up every Yom Kippur wanting pancakes? I never eat pancakes, <laughs> right? But it's like that thing, right? Like you tell yourself you can't do something. So I tell my patients, let's not, don't think about food as restriction. Think about it as abundance. Eat so much of that which serves you. So you have less room for that which doesn't. And no one gained weight eating too much chicken. Like stop with the palm of the hand nonsense. The damn chicken, right? Yeah. So eating like a lot of the good stuff that's going to suppress your hunger is really, um, I mean, it's good for you and it's abundant and it's nourishing as opposed to restricting and, and, you know, depriving. Yeah. And even just that deprivation mindset is it can be so detrimental to just the way we show up and the way we, you know, and like you said, like I did try keto. I've, I've shared this on the show before, but I tried keto for a month. I've tried, you know, different things here and there, especially when I was going through nutrition school, just to try out what they were talking about. And all I could think about were chickpeas. That's all I could think about that whole month that I did keto. Cause I was told I couldn't have chickpeas, but I really like chickpeas and they're nourishing to me and they make, they do something. I don't know what it is. They, they make me feel good and they're chickpeas. You know? I mean, I have patients say that about fruit all the time. Like mm. a cup of berries. I'm like, really like, and here's the other thing, like trust your intuition. I mean, I think if any of us, we, you don't need to be a, a medical doctor to just kind of close your eyes and be like, are berries really the problem? <laughs> right. Like they're not the problem, right? Yeah. So, so I would also say that, you know, we pay people and gurus and, you know, people who think they know it all. And, and even I, as a person who, uh, you know, I, I've studied and I have a medical degree and certifications in nutrition and obesity, I really encourage people like, trust your intuition. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, if you've been, if you've habituated to having, you know, a afternoon bag of chips every day, because you're working from home, and now you work next to your pantry, or you sit in front of the TV and watch Netflix and, and eat ice cream, you know, that, that your body's going to want that, right? And so I'm not saying list, like, that's your intuition, <laughs> You know, you do have to go through the painful, um, 
part of breaking a habit. It's painful to break a habit. It becomes habitual, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But when we sit with the desire, eventually that desire does wane, you know? Um, So following your intuition does not mean responding to every single signal that is given to you. But it does mean, you know, coming from a place of like, let's really, you know, let's really know what we're dealing with. And intuitively, we all know. Yeah, we do. And I think that that's, there is a lot of noise though, right? And like you said, there are a lot of people, there are influencers who are telling people how to eat and what to do. And I think a lot of people, and I hear this from a lot of people, they want a plan. They want somebody else to tell them what to do. They can't seem to trust themselves. And so what do you say to somebody who, well, I don't feel like I can trust myself around this food or this food, or I, you know, I don't know my intuition. How do you work through that? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there. So, so one thing I will say is that certain foods can become habitual, like we said, and can become triggering, right? Like, if you've been having chips every day at 5pm for the last six months, having a bag of chips in your pantry may be too much. It's not that you can't trust yourself. It's just your 5pm timer goes off, because that's what you've been doing. So, get it out of the house, right? Like if there's something right now, maybe six months from now, three months from now, you can sit with a bag of chips, have a couple and put it away. Um, but right now you can't. So so I do recommend like identifying what your triggers are and and getting them out, right? And mm-hmm. creating an environment for success. So that, that means getting the bad, or you know, I don't wanna say bad, but getting the triggering foods out, but also having your fridge well-stocked with good stuff. I mean, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, like, you know, those fruit guys who like chop up the fruit, you know, in all equal squares, it looks pretty and like, it's inviting, right? But then like your, I don't know, fruit drawer in the fridge, it's like half of the stuff is like brown and, you know, maybe there's, it's not inviting. Prepare, take time, cut up the fruit, make it beautiful, cut it, you know, leave it in the fridge so that it's inviting, create that environment um, for success. So that is one strategy, um, that I talk about. And, and your question was something totally different, which was trust, but, but it goes along with it, right? Yeah. Like, know that something is not good for you right now. The other point though, that I wanted to bring up is that the person who's reaching out to the guru or what have you, I mean, that's okay. Like, it's okay to gather your tribe. It's okay to have someone to help you with accountability. I mean, for me over the years of doing all the work I've done, I've had mentors. I had a writing coach who helped me, you know, kept me accountable to writing every week. Um, You know, like accountability is, is key and having people who can hold your hand through a process is key. And oftentimes I have patients come to me and they, they're so dejected and say, you know, I know all this already and I should be able to do it on my own. And my answer is why? Why should you do it on your own? Like you can have support. You can have handholding during this period of time in which it's hard for you to do it on your own. So don't judge that. Be grateful that there's someone who can do that for you. So while I don't, you know, these things are nuanced. It's not black and white. It's not like, you know, throw away all the gurus and it's not, you know, sell your soul to the keto stick, right? It's like you can find support and be intentional, intentional 
uh, about the people you you gather around you, people who are supportive, um, and and yet not fall for everything that comes your way, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like what you're saying is it is, it's just individual to every person. We all need something different. And so, you know, in your book, you did mention that sometimes that you prescribe or, you know, suggest different things for different people. It's not all the same for everybody. So what are, you know, do you promote supplements, medication? What are some other tools that you use to assist your clients? Yeah. So, um, you know, as a physician, I do prescribe medications and there are FDA approved drugs that help support weight loss. They've gotten historically a bad rap because of Fenfen and and I'm not going to say that all drugs are good for all people, but I successfully use medications in the right patients, uh, in the right candidate. I do recommend dietary strategies. So we talked about, you know, the protein and, and when people go through their diets, you know, when we really take a, a dietary recall, what I find is people's diet is really devoid of protein. And the recommendations are like I said, 20 to 30 grams. If you think about like breakfast, an egg white is only four grams. A whole egg is only seven grams. So how do you get that protein? I'm a huge proponent of supplementing the diet. I'm a huge proponent of whole food and you know cooking as I talk about my own cooking stories in the book. But if you can't get it through food, get it through supplements. And so I have a line of high protein, low calorie bars and nutritional shakes that are made with clean ingredients because that's the other thing you go to even whole foods right and not to knock whole foods but you go to a health store and look at an entire you know row an aisle of protein bars and like i would never give them to my kids so i created a line of protein bars that i would give to my kids called del bar um and so supplement right with protein so there's that um there are those practical um strategies that i recommend i prescribe. But then I also prescribe things like journaling, you know, and I'm actually coming out with a 30 day of journal prompts. And if oh, people nice. are interested, they can go to my website, dradrianudeem.com and sign up for our newsletter. And um, in the next couple of weeks, that prompts, those prompts will come out. And the reason why I did that is because, you know, journaling has been a huge part of my life. Um, I have journals from when I was six years old. And I, and I journal to this day. I mean, even on my, your viewers can't see this because it's being recorded, but you can see my journals that are, you know, on my desk and writing is a really powerful tool to uh, kind of dig deep. Well, two things. Number one, it's been shown to help reduce anxiety. Why? Because we are constantly ruminating, right? We're constantly bombarded with thoughts. And sometimes it's helpful to just dump that out of your mind and get it onto paper. So journaling is, is very effective for that. Um, but it's also effective in kind of figuring out what's going on. And sometimes I tell patients like, um, you know, I have a patient, this is very common, so it's not just her, but who really can't figure out why every night she needs to snack. She's not hungry. She's not watching TV. So it's not mindless, but she feels this like fear of hunger, you know, and, and, She's kind of like, I don't know, triggered to eat. Sit with that, right? Like journal that. What is going on? You know? Um, and in another patient story that I describe in the book, um, you know, I had a patient whose family was in the Holocaust and there was actually like anger 
from her family when she didn't clear her plate because she was being disrespectful of their plight or that's how it was mm. you know that's what we uncovered and so there's stuff there and and once you acknowledge that then you've got something to work with right you you have a place to start in acknowledging your hunger and addressing it yeah yeah that's good and i'd love to ask um because i know we're we don't have a whole lot of time left but is there in your book, which is called Hungry for More Stories and Science to Inspire Weight Loss from the Inside Out. I realized I did not give that full title earlier. I needed to do that. Um, did you have a favorite chapter or a favorite um, hungry for <laughs> that, that you did? There's, um, I mean, there's so many because they are per so personal. Um, they all obviously resonated. I love the first chapter, Hungry for Perfection, because it really... Um, even in writing it, I was, you know, going through my own process with letting go of perfection. Um, I loved Hungry for Presence um, because mm -hmm. it's it's a chapter that I share a difficult diagnosis in a family member that happened during COVID. And um, that was the easiest chapter to write. I wrote it in 30 minutes and put it in the book unedited. I didn't change a single word, but it was the hardest to share. Um, and, you know, very emotional to share. Um, but my favorite is probably Hungry for Meaning, which is the very last chapter in the book, where I realize and I share that every experience I had was necessary. Every yeah. hardship was necessary for me to be right here, right now in the place that I am. And I, I know um, that that goes true for everybody out there. You know, it's, that that is true for all of us our experiences make us who we are and this book is really my battle cry it's really my call to action um, to share what i have been the benefactor of i've been a benefactor of my patients and i'm so grateful and for that i want to share these stories and i really encourage people to read the stories because i think there is something there for everyone and to be able to recognize their hunger and to address it from a place of common humanity and self-compassion, that really is the message behind the book. Yeah, that's, that's that. And that's the message that I received and it was very well put together. And I, like I said, before we start recording, I don't say that to everybody. <laughs> I don't say that about every book. I do read a lot. Um, and my last question that I love to ask people on the show is that if you could give one piece of advice to spark someone toward wholeness, what would that be? Ooh, I have like a thousand things running through my head. Um, I think it really is this coming to yourself, uh, meeting yourself where you, you are at right now with self-compassion because our triumphs and our struggles um, our, you know, our good days and our bad days, our desires and our longings, that all is what makes us whole, mm -hmm. right? And so if we can accept all of that um, from a place of self-compassion and non-judgment and self-love, that's really how we incorporate all of our, the pieces of ourselves into wholeness. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. So where can people, you already gave your website, but will you give that again one last time where people can find you, follow you on Instagram, social media, all that. 
course. So I, I do my own daily Instagram posts. I love it. Um, so you can follow me at Dr. Adrian Udeem, all one word. Um, you can see pictures of my road trip with my puppy on there. And also I try and make it helpful with uh, actionable advice to my followers. I'm also uh, can be found at dradrianudeem.com. You can sign up for my newsletter, learn about my podcast, where again, it's called Health Bites. And I try and give people actionable bites towards um, physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being. And then the book is available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, um, and really anywhere you can find books. Uh, please go there, get it. And if you love it, leave a review because that helps only get the word out with others. Um, it has really been a meaningful journey writing this book and sharing it with people like you, Erin. So I really appreciate your positive feedback. And I just wish people, um, well, you know, I really genuinely wish people well. This has been a hard time for all of us. So be kind to yourselves and um, do the right thing. Well, thank you again for being on the show. This was so much fun and such a good thought-provoking conversation that I think will, will mean a lot for people. So I appreciate you taking the time. Of course, my pleasure. The tiniest spark leads to the biggest blaze. And I hope that today's episode sparks you on a journey to healing and wholeness. Thanks for listening to Sparking Wholeness. For more information on what I do and my coaching programs, or maybe just to reach out and say, hey, find me at sparkingwholeness.com or on Instagram at sparkingwholeness. Have a fabulous week.